left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. I just remember that going, wow, that guy's, like, it just didn't hit me until late at how flipping smart he was. I just wasn't ready to receive it. It just didn't sink into my thick skull. And I wish it had. I would have probably been better off if I had sunk in a little earlier. But it was still great. And I get it now. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Ryan Gibson from Spartan Investment Group, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I am really excited today to have Toby Mathis with us. He has been a tax attorney for 25 years and is one of the founding partners at Anderson Advisor. His career is focused on how to save money and how to make money for him and his clients. And as a result of his uh, tax work with tens of thousands of successful investors, including preparing over 100,000 investor tax returns, Toby has pieced together their methods to building wealth and now educates us on that in their surprisingly simple process. He's also an author. He wrote Infinity Investing, How the Rich Get Richer and How You Can Do the Same. I read that book. It's a fantastic read. I recommend it. Toby, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jim. This is going to be fun. I'm glad you're here and I'm, I'm glad I hit record this time, but I'm not going to tell the audience that. So the way we start out, as you know, is just to have you tell a little bit about your journey, how you got to where you are and where you started and where you are now. Yeah. So I'm an attorney by trade, but I didn't become an attorney to practice law. I became an attorney because I had a mentor who did not like the lawyers he was working with and said they were always deal killers. And he really wanted people close to him that he could trust that understood business. And so his son and I actually went to, to law school, both became attorneys. And I hung my shingle out on day one. I was always a business owner first. I was always entrepreneur minded first. And I have a really strong belief that you can't advise folks if you don't understand exactly what they're doing. And it's really tough for attorneys to help entrepreneurs out and investors out if they're not investors themselves. And so as I've gone through the years, I'm an avid real estate investor. My partner actually grew up, or one of my partners had two really great partners, but one of them grew up doing apartment complexes. And that's who I invest a lot with. We're up over 300 separate properties around the country. We have everything from apartment building, single family, et cetera. And I always just enjoyed the process. I learned by doing, and I love advising and working with other investors. And 25 years, it seems like I went by in a heartbeat, but 
you look back and you realize, wow, there's just so many deals, so much stuff that we learned, so many mistakes that you make and you learn from them and then you can share that with others. Uh, yeah, so now I'm sitting here at Anderson. We have over 500 folks, attorneys, accountants, bookkeepers, you name it. I was really blessed in being able to work with Forbes to write a book, Infinity Investing, on the experiences. Like, I'll just be straight up. I don't have original thoughts. I get them from my clients who are really successful. And so you'll see it's a collection of stories on people that have great philosophies that have worked well for them and worked well for others. So I got to write that book and it's just been a blast. It's a great story. And I, I love how you became an attorney to help business owners. And this is a great way to look at it and gives you a whole different perspective, I would think, on how investors operate, right? And so the first question, I guess, is the biggest difference, since you've seen so many investors, you've seen people making money, what's the biggest difference to people who consistently make money and those who, who don't? I would say it's patience. The number one difference that I see is the ability to kind of sit on your hands when the world is going crazy. So you hear right now, everybody's, oh, the real estate's going to crash. The markets are crashing. This is the worst. We're going to go into a deep recession and all that stuff. And it's just knowing that a steady hand gets the ship into shore when you're going through a storm, right? It's this idea that don't react. A lot of Wall Street and a lot of the real estate world makes its money when you decide to take action and pull the trigger. So if you sell a property, you buy a property, obviously they make money. So they make money through activity. Investors, the most successful investors make money through inactivity. They buy and they hold and they're consistent and they have a philosophy and they marry themselves to it and they don't change. They're really good about sitting on their hands when everybody else is running for the exits and they're Warren Buffett's probably the classic example of somebody who just, hey, you know what? doesn't matter whether the market's going up and down, consistently buy into it. Nobody has a crystal ball. Even if you stink and you have the worst timing in the world, if you consistently buy, statistically speaking, you're going to be very, very, very successful over time. Don't forget that. And don't listen to the talking heads on TV. So I think that's a great way to look at it. And, and how I look at it, I've taken some of the fundamentals of the stock market and all that I learned as a financial advisor and put it into my real estate business. And the one big factor besides diversification is dollar cost averaging. Yeah. So I kind of look at now, there's all kinds of uncertainty. Everybody's scared. There aren't as many deals out there, but I'm not stopping. So is that what you're recommending kind of is, is don't just stop or don't sell maybe, don't stop, but keep investing. You just might have to sharpen your pen a little bit more, but you still want to keep putting capital to work, right? 100%. Yeah. And so they've done studies. Uh, you come from the financial market. So you've probably seen a bunch of this stuff that if you simply bought at the bottom of markets, it's not like you're actually doing better if you're buying both up and down. So we're always in that in between zone. We always think that you can time the market. Nobody can time the market. Nobody knows whether it's up or down. Maybe you can say, hey, we're definitely going to do for a correction, but you never really know. And so studies have shown mathematically that if you consistently buy both up and down and you don't stop, that you're better off than trying to time the market. Even if you were just that guy that you bought at the top every single time and you consistently did that, you're still okay. And just realizing there's never a bad time to actually be buying. Once you can get over that hurdle, then it's like you said with the dollar cost averaging, you're just better off. At the end of the day, we can look back in hindsight and say, hey, that was a really good time to be buying, or that was a really horrible time to be buying. But in a 10-year stretch, it's not really good. That's what I've seen. And so do you recommend then that 
in times like this, when there's all this uncertainty with interest rates, inflation, and all that's going on in the world, you're recommending, and I am too, you keep investing. Are there different asset classes that you pivot to in these type of conditions, or are you just whatever you were buying before? And then the other question is, what are the top asset classes, the best asset classes for the best returns in your mind? So if we're talking stocks, I am really basic. I buy good, solid companies that have free cash flow that pay their shareholders. So I am a big dividend company investor. And it doesn't matter whether the market's going up or down, that dividend doesn't really change. And so I tend to buy companies that have been increasing their dividends consistently no less than 10 years, and I prefer 25 years. So if you're familiar with the dividend aristocrats or the dividend kings, where those are the types of companies you're looking for because they tend to be recession proof. They tend to have, they've already done this and they continue to be profitable. They have a good moat around their products. So they tend to be good companies. And I'm one of those guys that says 10 to 15 good companies that you use, that you like, that you understand and invest in those, or just do a, do the SPY and just consistently be buying. And I keep it simple like that on that side. On the real estate market, I believe, and I think the data backs me up, that we're underbuilt as a country and that every time we get into this weird affordability crisis, it's because new home builders building stuff, they're jacking the price up, the median price jumps up, runs away from the rental market. And so I do an analysis of the average home for rent that you can get money on in the median price. You can actually see the median price take off. About two years ago, it starts escalating faster than rents were keeping up. So you knew that we were over, how do you say, that it was too hot. It wasn't going to be maintained at that level, that eventually the rental market's going to start playing catch up. It doesn't mean the market's going to crash. It just means that it's going to level out maybe some small decline for a period of time until it catches up. The good news is rents are going up consistently. We're in one market where we have a couple hundred properties. Rents went up 42% last year. It's crazy. There's certain places, again, it's just putting yourself into a cash flow property. Like if you're looking for the strategy, I would say it's cash flow properties. I think that there's a ton of room in manufactured housing. I think that that's one of the few areas where Wall Street hasn't been able to affect and a lot of individual operators. It's not as sexy as building big apartment buildings and that. And I also think that storage is great. Storage and RV parks, people always need a place to put their stuff. We have an increasing population, whether people realize it or not. Lots of people in the United States, lots of people that want to come here. We're going to continue to grow and we're underbuilt. So there's plenty of opportunity to serve those people and make good money. I would probably avoid high-end properties. I wouldn't be a flipper right now unless that's really what you do. Like you got to be really smart. I tend to be not smart. I just like buying things and letting them pay me over a long period of time. And then 20 years later, you look back and you say, I bought it for what? Wow, it's gone up. That is the great strategy, right? It's set it and forget it almost. And you know, as long as you're buying the good assets and maintaining them going forward, you're going to be happy in the end, right? I think that stats show that. And you mentioned we do about 10,000 returns a year. I tend to look at the folks making the most money and I just, I'm always keeping my eyeball on them and what are they doing? And it's always been this way. Like if somebody has, hey, my grandpa has a great, says the stock market's great. He lives off the stock market. I already know what that person's doing, right? They're probably writing covered calls and they're living off of dividends. So you know what companies they're in. They're not chasing tech stocks. Tech stocks are great on TV. They you know, oh, it went up 30%. You know, it's all that, it's sexy, it's hot. Gets people to jump up and have the fear of missing out. What's not sexy is when you say Procter & Gamble is 
raised his dividend again for 57 years straight, 3M or Coca-Cola. It's just not sexy. It's not doing a lot, but it's paying you for your investment. And you get paid back every flipping quarter, sometimes more often, but you're just getting this consistent cash flow. If you want to increase it, write a covered call on it. That's fantastic. But you can literally set it and forget it and just consistently be buying more to set it. Hey, we're going to continue to invest in this monthly, whatever it is, quarterly. Just don't stop. That's the trick. Yeah. And I think the asset prices might go up and down, especially like stocks, coal or whatever, even real estate might go up and down. But the cash flow isn't going to change that significantly, right? Is If Coke stock drops 50%, they're not going to slash their dividend 50% that day. And if real estate markets drop 20 or 30 or 50%, rents aren't going to be cut that fast either. So you can still make money in these downturns. We learned that here in Las Vegas, where I, where I live, 2008, nine and 10, right? You had 75% of your values lost in this area. And we had rental properties. We were buying properties. We were still flipping. We were trying to do that in this market. I think it was BlackRock, Blackstone, one of them was coming in and buying consistently in Vegas and making the market. Anything under 200,000 was nuts. But we had these properties throughout that period of time and the rents didn't go down. The rents actually started to slightly go up because people needed a place to rent. And it was like one of those aha moments, right? You're looking at everything other than what's working. There's all this devastation out there. All these people are coming in and buying up Las Vegas. If you had a million dollar home, you couldn't sell it for 300,000. But if you had a $200,000 home, they were bidding it up and going over asking, right? It was crazy. People just needed a place to live and investors realized the rents are good, right? So that was one of those epiphanies. It was like, wow, I want more of those. So Vegas got run up and it was too hot. So you couldn't get a great cap rate off it. So you just looked to where you could get a good cap rate. So you go to Indy, you go to Ohio, you go to Kansas City, you go to different places. We bought a bunch in Oklahoma City and Houston and Birmingham and Memphis. Like you go into the usual suspects, right? Places where they have lots of folks that need rental properties and the houses haven't been run up. We've done really, really well with it. We just don't intend to dump anything. You're just looking at it going, it's a nice little cash flow machine. You wake up and you know what it's what money's going to come in. You don't have to worry about it. And everybody's screaming about the meltdown and the Fed raising interest rates. And you're like, yeah, that, that's really going to affect a lot of markets, but not mine. Yeah, that's the, I guess, one of the benefits, the freedom of this type of investing. You know, when the stock market goes down, I honestly, I don't even notice anymore because I don't really care. I mean, I probably should notice more than I do, but I'm like, I don't have that much money in there. And the stuff I do, like you said, it's dividend producing and it's going to be fine. I can take that worry out of my worry bucket. I look at my dividends. I still look at that when they say, hey, you were just paid this dividend. I like looking at that because, hey, it's long-term capital gains, qualified dividends, so it's a good tax rate. But I I just like seeing that the money's coming in. So I do pay attention to the free cash flow of the company. I don't really care about their stock price, though. It's like having a house. Like, could you imagine if you had a ticker signal over your house? And every day you drove home, it told you what your house was worth and it's going up and down and driving you crazy. All that does is make you do things you shouldn't do, right? Oh, oh absolutely. In value, or my house is worth a lot. I should sell it. You're doing stuff you shouldn't normally do. Like, do you like your house? The house you love, like, do you need to sell it? Then why are you thinking about it? We do that in the stock market, but man, like, and people will start to do it on their rentals. And I'm just like, stop doing that, right? Yeah, do accumulate. It's cash flow investing, right? That's what it's all about. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. And so I want to kind of, go through some of the questions or topics you had in the book, because it's just, it really nailed a lot of great stuff. And one of the first is everyone talks about financial freedom, but what does that really mean? What is financial freedom? Not having to work. 
getting to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And to me, it was like getting hit in the head with a sledgehammer when somebody said, how many days could you go without working? If you lost your job, how many days would you be able to survive off your passive income? Or how long would you be able to do that? So if you just went on vacation, you said, I'm going to go on vacation for, for X number of days. How many days could you do that where you could leave your job and not have an income? And I'd never really thought about it. And so I was like doing my own calculations. And I was like, crap, I don't have enough passive income coming in to replace what I spent. And then I just made it kind of my, I said, all right, then I'm going to start focusing on ranch royalties, dividends, interest to a certain extent if you're a lender, capital gains if you like to sell covered calls. But I look at the things that I don't have to work for. And I started adding up that. And then once that amount exceeds what your expenses are, you never have to work again. You can leave your job or you can just quit doing what you're doing. And it's nice to not have to go to work, like if you don't want to. So it's not that you don't. Most people I know work really hard and love doing what they're doing and would do it for free. But if you're in a situation where it's like, I don't have to do it, I think that's financial freedom is the ability to just kind of say if you and your spouse or significant other or just you just wanted to do it yourself, whatever, you just wanted to go travel the world and you could do it. Great. That's financial freedom, too. That makes a lot of sense. As you're talking, true wealth can be measured in how many days of can you last without having to go get a job? And once you get to it's the rest of my days, then you're free and you have options and choices. And that's really what we're working for. It's not that we're trying to get wealthy beyond imagination. We're just trying to get to where we have options. That's how I look at it. And that's how you explained a little bit too. We saw it in 2008, 9, 10. People that say, I have millions of dollars of real estate. I have all this equity, but I'm going to get foreclosed on because I can't make a payment. They lost their job. And they were all saying the same thing. But I'm a millionaire. That doesn't matter. You can't service the debt. You don't have any income coming in. They're going to take it from you. You're going to lose it all. And you end up in bankruptcy. You end up in that horrible process. You saw people that had equity in their house. They may have owned their house outright. They lose their job and they can't access that equity. I just remember that people, they were real estate rich and cash poor. And so I always look at it, it's like, you can't just have the real estate. It needs to be producing the income. You can't just have a stock portfolio. It needs to be producing income. And if you have enough income coming in, it doesn't matter what the portfolio is worth. It doesn't matter what your real estate is worth. You don't need to borrow on it. You have enough money coming in. If you want to lever it, you certainly can, but you don't need to. And you're not in a situation where you're forced to. And that's what, again, is going through that experience really colored that philosophy. It was like, wow, you saw people just getting smoked when they shouldn't have. Like they just bought the wrong stuff. In your book, you talk about financial imprisonment. Can you explain what that means? What is financial imprisonment? Financial imprisonment is kind of the losing loop that people get into where you're basically living off of you're incurring liabilities. We're seeing it right now. You're seeing credit card bills go up. You're seeing people having to pay some of their expenses with a liability. And then you're stuck serving the liability. So you may have a great job, but you don't have freedom. You're literally working for your creditors. So you've become, you're in servitude. So Forbes wouldn't let me use the term slavery because I said, you're basically a slave to somebody else. You're a slave to the lender. And that's the term I use. You could say servitude, but I say you become a slave to a lender. When you are working to pay somebody else for what they loaned you, to me, that's servitude. And we see that over and over and over again. People that are fluent, they make two, $300,000 a year, but they're working to pay their mortgage, their car payments, the loans for their kids to go to school, the toys that they have, their visa, maybe they have a little bit of a spending problem. That to me makes you into a servant for somebody else. 
Well, how do you get around that? You mentioned you're paying your expenses with a liability. How do you do it differently? Monopoly. You buy things that pay your expenses for you, buy assets. The easy definition, Jim, is assets feed you, liabilities bleed you. Like what puts money in my account every month? That's an asset. What takes money out of my account every month? That's a liability. So a piece of real estate, people are always like, well, real estate's an asset. Not if it's sucking money out of your account every month. Like your house is a, is a liability. It's a big stinking life. Car is a liability. It costs you money every month. You got to insure it. You got to put gas in it. You got to service it. Unless you're doing Turo, it's a liability, right? So once you realize that, then simple rules, like don't buy a liability with a liability. The last thing you should do is buy a car with the loan, right? You're servicing the loan and you're servicing the car. That's a double punch. So the solution is just to buy assets that pay for these things. So if I'm going to buy a car, I don't care what kind of car it is. What I care is, will the assets that I own pay for that car? So if I buy a couple rental properties in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, they're $100,000 each and they produce 750 bucks a month. So I got $1,500 a month cash flow coming in. I could take that and lease a car, right? That's fine. I could get a Bentley if I wanted. Whatever it is, I'm not going to tell you not to have nice things, but I'm not going to work for it. I'm not going to take my salary or my income and pay for that thing, right? I'm going to let the asset, I'll let my tenant pay for those things for me, right? Yeah. So then what do you do with your income then? Is that what you use to buy the assets that pay for your expenses and your liabilities? Yep. And that's why I said monopoly. You're going around the board, you're using the money that you got to buy something that's going to generate rents or some sort of income. We all learn monopoly right away. The first few times you're on the board, you buy everything you land on. In our world, we don't. Your first time's around the board, you're buying a car, you're buying a bunch of other stuff, you're buying your first house. None of it's income producing. And so you're starting off buying liabilities. Then you wonder why you're 60 years old and you can't get out of your own way and you're going to be working until you're 75 and then you're still worried about your retirement. And if we just switch the mentality and said, buy the assets. So I'll share with you, I don't talk about this much, but there's a guy named Boyd Watkins. He's probably still alive up in Burien, Washington. But I sat down with the guy in the 80s. So it was 1989. And he was a friend of my mentor, a guy named Jerry Getty, who was just a super dude. Jerry's since passed, and hopefully Boyd's still with us. But Boyd had this big old list of properties that he owned in Seattle and in Denver. And he sat down and he showed me this list. It was a printout, because back in the days when we didn't have the internet thing wasn't quite there, and computers were just coming along. So it was in paper. And I remember looking at this list, and it was hundreds of properties. And I was just like astounded. And he was like, yeah, those rents, it produces this great income. I was too blinded by the fact that he had pages of properties. It did not sink into me for probably 10 years later, maybe 15 years later. Wow, he had a money machine and it was printing money that he could do whatever he wanted with that money. He was still buying more real estate because he was a real estate investing addict. I'm sure that some of us are out there, like you can relate. You'll always be buying stuff. You look at it and you're like, that's a great house. I'm going to buy that. How about an Airbnb? Yeah, sign me up for that too. How about a rental? or a storage facility, you sign me up for that one too. I want a little bit of everything, right? And I just looked at it and it just never sunk into me that he was buying for the cash flow. He didn't really care what they were worth. I mean, they're worth it. It was hundreds of properties back in the eighties. I can only imagine what he's worth. It'd be tens of millions, if not over a hundred million dollars now. And I'm just looking at that going, he didn't have to do anything. All he had to do is wait, don't sell it. I'm sure he's still out there sharing wisdom with people. I just remember that and going, wow, that guy's, like, it just didn't hit me until later how flippin' smart he was. I just wasn't ready to receive it. It just didn't sink into my thick skull. And I wish it had. I would have probably been better off if I'd sunk in a little earlier. But it was still great. And I get it now. 
Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. We would like to introduce one of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, to the left field investors community. At Ashcroft, they focus on capital preservation while still having upside potential through their value-add funds. They are proud to announce their second fund, the Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2, is now open to investors. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 has been created with one singular purpose in mind, to reduce risk to investors. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 will continue to use the same conservative business plan Ashcroft was founded with, acquiring quality multifamily assets and offering value-add opportunity in strong performing markets throughout the country. To learn more about Ashcroft Capital's investment criteria, or about the markets and properties they are targeting, please download their latest AVAF2 Frequently Asked Questions Guide at ashcroftcapital.com slash left field. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash left field. Well, you were looking at the assets, not the cash flow. And in your book, you talk about this and you kind of mentioned it with the assets feed you part. But you have an interesting definition of an asset. It's different than most. Can you tell us what is an asset in your mind? An asset provides income. An asset feeds you. An asset actually pays you money. That's all an asset is. Again, so somebody has put anything in front of something. Is this stock an asset? If it's not paying you, no. How about gold? Not paying you anything? No, it's not. It's not an asset. Well, is it taking money? Well, if I have to store the gold, it might be a liability. And people hate that. Like they get all mad at me and they'll argue and I'll be like, I'm sorry, but if you're paying money for something, it's a liability until you sell it. I don't want to sell it. My whole idea is I, my holding period is forever. So if I buy something, is it moving the needle positive or is it taking money out of my account? If it's neutral, well, I say you could have about 10% of your stuff in neutral cash, cash or cash equivalents, your crypto, your gold, your silver, your US dollars, your yen, whatever you want to buy. That's neutral. That's not moving it. But you really want to have the vast majority of your holdings in an asset that's moving the needle positively, putting money in your pocket. It's actually creating income. If you did that, you're gonna, it's really hard to screw it up. If you have a nice mix, I use a 30-30-30. So I say 30% in stocks that are producing income. And there's ways to make money on companies that you own too. It's covered calls. And if I wanted to buy a company, sometimes I sell a put to get into the position. So there's other ways to make money in the stock market. But like it just basic is just buying good income producing companies, 30%. Now I'll do 30% income producing real estate and then 30% managed portfolios, which means either I have a money manager or I'm doing syndications or I'm mirroring somebody else's holdings. Like you could just grab Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway and say, I'm going to buy exactly what's in there and I'm going to follow them to a T. And that's what I'm going to do is just taking yourself out of the equation. But if you did that 30, 30, 30, and then 10% in cash or cash equivalents, it's really hard to screw it up. Really hard, almost impossible. Like even right now you'd say like, but the market's crashing. My cash flow hasn't changed at all. Cash flow is doing great. It doesn't affect me. 
well, your Altria dropped. Okay, so my dividend went from 4% to 8%. It's the same dividend. It doesn't matter to me, right? He's like, hey, everything's on sale. I think Warren Buffett said it. He goes, he liked to buy his stocks the same way he buys his socks. Good quality on sale. That's it. Do that. Do what really rich people do. They don't sweat it. They're not sitting there. The press loves to talk about net worth. Oh, Elon Musk lost billions of dollars. No, he didn't. He didn't sell it. Come on, don't be silly. The guy's lifestyle is not changing one iota. Quit making it out to be something it's not. Most of the wealthy folks have assets that are paying them and they don't really care what it's worth. It's great if it goes up. It's great if it goes down. It's no sweat on me. I don't really care. I got the same amount of rents coming in. I got the same amount of dividends coming in, that type of thing. That's a powerful way to look at it because you're right. So many people concentrate on net worth. There's even sayings around it and people calculate it all the time. But I agree with you. The cash flow is what matters because that's what you actually do with it. And you can grow your net worth and your cash flow stays the same. But I'm more interested in growing my cash flow. And then my net worth grows. Fantastic, right? We learn it when we're going through retirement. So like my mom's in her 80s. She was freaking out because they're spending down her portfolio. Now I told my mom, hey, you don't have to worry. But she was worried. Seems like I'm spending it down too fast. I'm going to run out of money when I'm 90. What a crappy thought to have. You should not spend down your portfolio at all. In fact, your portfolio should be untouched. You should be living off of the income. And if all we did is just change the way we do things, and there's people that do that, like they'll go into annuities and stuff and they'll guarantee here's your income and then they'll take your underlying asset. That's what the insurance companies are really good at. They'll give you that security and then you'll get nothing. And if you die too early, they win. If you die too late, they lose, right? They're pretty good at predicting your mortality. I just say, take them out of the equation and buy things that produce income. Like I could buy, rents have been going up statistically over time consistently. Like it's, even when the housing market goes nuts, the realm, rentals are just consistently moving up and we're not building right now. So what's going to happen in two years? Two years, we're going to have even less inventory. Like it's going to be really bad. The new builders are not building right now. They're scared to death because the Fed is trying its best to destroy our economy. They're like, we're going to cause pain and suffering. You're like, great. Thanks, Uncle Fed. Yeah. And then I want to transfer to the, what I think is, is the biggest eroder of wealth is tax, right? And you talked about in the book, there's three tax buckets. I've heard of three tax buckets. I even wrote a blog on it once, which is on our website if you want to read it. But you labeled them differently than I've ever seen before. And it's bad, better, and infinity. So can you tell us a little bit about those tax buckets? I like how you labeled them. Well, I'll start with the best, infinity. But it's kind of like Elon Musk, right? He used him as an example a lot of times because he's got all these assets. He's worth billions of dollars, but he doesn't have to pay tax. Like they showed his tax. Everybody's pissed off that he doesn't pay tax because you could buy, borrow, die. Like he's got the asset. He's built the Tesla empire, SpaceX, all those things. He can borrow against it. You don't have to pay any, any tax on it. That's fantastic. And then when you die, everything steps up in basis. You don't pay tax on that either. If you do sell it, your capital gains, and you could even defer that, like real estate. If you never want to pay any capital gains on real estate, you can avoid it entirely just by 1031 exchange, right? And then you die and it steps up in basis and nobody has to pay tax. Like, that's great. That's wonderful. Never pay a tax. Stock, same thing. I could just own the stock, borrow against it my entire lifetime. It's paying me out a dividend, which is long-term capital gains treat. There's just not much better than that. That's just perfect. Then you go to the worst. The worst is... You're working at McDonald's. You're making, I remember when I started working at McDonald's, I made $4.15 an hour. And they withheld every tax known to man. I was looking at Buddha, soda, 
OADSI, like Social Security, Medicare. I was like, what is all this crap they're withholding? The number one generator of income for our government in 2020 was not federal income taxes. It was federal employment taxes. People do not realize that we tax the poor the highest because by definition, those taxes are the majority of it's coming from people making less than $150,000 a year. It's like the vast majority. of them. So you start realizing, wait a second, that's the worst type of income bucket, active income. It sucks. You absolutely get crushed. You're going to be paying 37% federal plus your state, plus you're going to get hit with Social Security. They even have a bump up. So like even if you're a rich guy, you're making 500000 you're still paying a minimum of what, 3.8% in the Medicare portion with the bump up. It's like, you're just getting killed. Plus you're probably paying, like you're in California, you're paying 13% state. Plus you're, you can't write that off because the salt limitation, uh, the state and local tax limitation in uh, taxes, and you're paying 37%. You're literally paying more than 50% of your income in taxes. That's the worst treatment. And then there's the, in the middle where, yeah, okay, I have some capital gains. I might be paying 20, 23.8%. That's not so bad. It's not the best, but it's not the worst. And you're just looking at it differently. You're even looking at things like, hey, I'm going to defer my taxes. I'm going to put it into a 401k and I'm going to pay ordinary income when it comes out. But I get 30 years of deferral. I'll take that action all day long. And you have these weird people out there talking about converting your traditional IRA to a Roth. And like, let's pay all the tax now because are your taxes going up or down when you retire? They're going to go down. Do you trust the government? They talk that nonsense. The average tax rate when you retire is a lot less than when you're working because that first bucket is so vicious. So I would never voluntarily pay that first bucket, that active income. If I could, I'd push it into the second bucket and say, hey, I'll pay it later at a lower rate when I retire. But, but give me 30 years of deferral. Mathematically, it pencils out about the equivalent over 30 years. A Roth and a traditional is no different. If your tax returns, no. If your taxes don't go up or down, like your tax rate, you're definitely going to go down from a tax rate if your income goes down. And that's what happens when we retire. The average tax rate is about 12, 13% versus when you're in your prime, it's around 29%. It goes down, pretending that that doesn't happen. So those buckets are helpful when you start looking at it going, what should I not make? Just raw active income. I should be deferring it. I should be doing everything I could to do it. And realistically, I should be getting more of my income out of that infinity bucket, which is rents, royalties, dividends, interest, and capital gains. That's really the type of stuff that I should be focusing on. Yeah, I really like that. And I like the way in the book, everything is plain, bad, better. I mean, those are great labels rather than all the fancy stuff. But you talk about the keys to breaking free. And this is really kind of the whole point of the book, I think. And tell me if I have this right, but you use your income, as you mentioned, to buy assets. Your assets then are paying your expenses and you use your assets to pay for liabilities. Is that kind of how the diagram works? That's exactly it. Most people are familiar with profit and loss and balance sheets, right? So you have income and expenses, you have assets and liabilities, and they both kind of sit, like just imagine that there's four boxes. The top two boxes are income and expenses. The bottom two boxes are assets and liabilities. What the best scenario is that you have your income coming in and it's buying assets and the assets are paying your expenses and paying for any liabilities you have. That's the best route. The worst route is when you have your income going immediately to liabilities like mortgages, credit card bills, and car payments. And then you're using your liabilities to pay for your expenses. So you're actually putting expenses, a line of credit, or you're borrowing against your house so you can pay your expenses, or you're using a credit card to buy things and you're going backwards. 
when you start mapping this stuff out, that's the vast majority of Americans, by the way. And I call that the losing loop. And what happens is eventually, if you don't have enough income, you're going to have to make a major life change. And it's usually when you retire, you're going to have to downsize everything. You're going to have to get rid of all your liabilities. A lot of them, you're going to realize you don't have enough assets. You're not like, you're going to be relying on social security. And I think about 90% of the public out there relies in some fashion on social security to help them during retirement. And so I just look at it saying that's a blight on our society. We're so rich. Why the hell do we have to rely on a welfare system? And I know everybody says, well, I pay into it. It's a welfare system. It was designed to help people that ran out of money so that they wouldn't be destitute. It's a welfare system. And if that's what you're banking on, we're going to have trouble. So I would suggest that you don't bank on that. And then instead you say, hey, I need to have assets. Like I always tell people, you're about seven properties that you own outright away from financial independence. Most people, the average person spends about $5,000 a month. If you have seven good properties, you're probably going to have cash flow of about 5,000 a month. So you're seven properties outright away. And where can you find these properties? Like I can find properties still for 100, 120. So let's say you're less than a million dollars away from financial independence, just about everybody, but they'll go out and buy a house worth a million bucks and think it's the same thing. But a liability is going to suck. That's a great way of looking at it. I can't let you leave without asking you an attorney question because we've mostly been talking about building wealth and mindset and things like that. But we had a conversation because I've talked to a few attorneys about how to structure estates and do you need a bridge trust, foreign bridge trust and complicated LLCs nesting with each other and protect my assets, protect my estate. And I love your approach, which is basically you don't really need all that stuff. So can you just kind of give us a quick overview of a typical person who's doing syndication investing, maybe have some money in the market. How do they set up their trusts and everything so they're protected, but so it doesn't get so complicated? Yeah, I'll make it really easy. If you look at now and then you look in the future and you look at the future about 200 years and you say, all right, what is my legacy going to look like and how do I protect it? So what we know for sure is that you're not going to be here in 200 years, maybe 300 years. Some of us might live to be 200, right? There's a good chance you're not going to be here. It's more likely than not, right? So we should not have stuff in our name. That's really as easy as it comes down to. It's like, if I'm going to be gone, then I shouldn't have something in my name. I should have a vehicle to allow it to carry on. And from an asset protection standpoint, I have liabilities no matter what. I should tell you guys this, but my mom, she hit a school bus. She's driving around and she doesn't see the school bus. It wasn't even moving and it didn't have any kids in it. But I always like kind of chuckle. I was like, well, how did you hit it? She goes, I just didn't see it there. It was like raining or something. But I always say like, what if you hit a, somebody, you're driving around and you hit a busload of kids and you get the lightning suit out of you. You still got to make sure that they can't take everything away from you. If it's in your name, they can take it. So you don't need to go do the foreign stuff. There's some reason some people might do it if you actually have activities outside the United States. I understand the bridge trust. If you're in a high risk profession, maybe if you're a surgeon or something, I get it. I don't see them as particularly useful. I don't think courts like it. I don't think that the courts, you here in the United States, they're going to toss you in contempt. And there's cases where they put them in jail and said, bring the money back. And then you're going to jail for contempt or you're bringing the money back. And it's a hard decision. How about you just use domestic entities and don't mess with any of that? And there's plenty of domestic entities that they can't break into. And they're simple. But at its root core is all anybody really needs. Like if I'm, if I'm doing syndications, it's already in a vessel. It's in an LLC or it's in an LP. Just put that in trust. Make it so simple. Like quit screwing around and doing all this crazy stuff. Just get a living trust. 
it could be a dynasty trust. Like people use these different terms for it. A living trust does not have to distribute. It can go on like in my state here in Nevada, it's 365 years. You could use the state law if you wanted to. You just draft a trust here and boom, it could just sit there and have your assets held there for the benefit of your beneficiaries for health, education, maintenance, to support. Maybe you want them to travel. So you say every year you can leave the country and we'll cover it. Maybe you want them to buy real estate so you can say, hey, we'll match your down payment on any real estate that you buy up for your first property or two. You can put things like that in there. You just make sure that the core of your assets are going to continue to live on. You cannot do that as an individual. You cannot do that with a will. You cannot do that in your individual name. And it becomes really, really simple. So you say, okay, I want to make sure it's something that doesn't die. So I do a living trust and maybe you put everything into an LLC if it's the liquid investments like stocks and things like that so that nobody can take it from you. Maybe that's what you do. Super simple, clean, easy. You can make it to where it doesn't even have to file a tax return. So there's not any compliance. Neither of those, by the way, living trust and a disregarded LLC do not file a tax return. So you could just do that at its simplest core. That's so, so simple and so effective. And it'll last indefinitely hundreds of years if you wanted to. You can get more complex. The real estate, because it creates liability itself, chances are you're going to want to create a little more of a structure for that, depending on where the real estate's held. You might be able to use series LLCs. If you're in Florida, you could probably use land trusts instead of LLCs because they afford protection. If you're in California, the franchise tax, so how you might use a Wyoming statutory trust in combination with a land trust. Like There's lots of nuances that you use if you're an avid real estate investor. But at its core, it comes down to, I want one vessel going into a trust. So if I have my liquid assets, my syndications, it might be one. If I have my risk assets, my real estate, it may be another. So you might have two vessels that are held by the trust carrying on for years and years and years. You do something like that, you're gonna be really, really happy. It's simple to operate. It's not expensive and it serves people, in my opinion, it serves them way better than doing all this crazy bridge trust and offshore and going into foreign jurisdictions. By the way, the vast majority of my clients that have lost money have been in foreign jurisdictions where a trustee disappears with their money. When you see people coming in, it was over and over and over again there for a while in the 90s. It was crazy. And then there was a group teaching it again in the early 2000s where everybody was going off and they used this offshore trustee who just shut down and took everybody's money. And now you have to go to Isle of Man or Caymans or whatever, and you have to sue somebody. And you were like doing it for somebody else. Like, ah, nobody will ever be able to get to them. And now you're looking at yourself going, you just put yourself in that scenario. So I like, I tend to not particularly care for those things. I understand it. People that do it, I get it. It's appropriate for some people, but for the vast majority I found is keep it simple. Make it to where you can't screw it up. I like that. I like the simple. I don't like getting all complicated, especially with all this entities and things like that. That's great advice. The last question I always ask, what's a great podcast that you like to listen to? (laughs) You're going to ask that. So I can go with the Joe Rogans, things like that, Ben Shapiro. I tend to like the real estate guys. They're a competitor, but they're good folks. And I love listening to some of those things. The tax, the the real estate CPAs. So some of those are fun to listen to. I'm not a huge podcast guy overall, but I do love YouTube channels and things like that. And just, just go get four or five that you enjoy. And my partner, Clint Coons, if you wanted a YouTube channel, go there or go to mine. There's always fun stuff there. And I like your guys' stuff. Like So like I was going to tell people, go to Left Field Investors, man. That's the only podcast they need. There you go. I like that. That's going in the show notes for sure. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? But I would actually encourage them to just type in my name, Toby Mathis. And I'm all over the internet. Go to my YouTube channel. 
the firm is Anderson Advisors, and we've been doing this for 25 years. We love working with real estate investors, just investors and business owners as a whole. Good core group of people, about 500 of us here, a bunch of attorneys, tax accountants, folks that'll help make sure that you're keeping on the straight and narrow and you're keeping yourself out of trouble and minimizing lawsuits, maximizing the benefit of whatever type of investing you're doing and great legacies for people. Love working with folks that have that mindset. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. We appreciate you. This is a great content in here. And also I will end with recommending, if you haven't read it, check out Infinity Investing. It's a great book. It really gets mindset going as regards your finance. So thank you again, Toby. We appreciate you being on. Appreciate it. At BAM Capital, we democratize institutional grade multifamily assets for the individual investor. Since inception, we've averaged over a 31% annualized return net to our investors. My name is Ivan Barrett. I'm the founder and CEO of BAM Capital. I sincerely hope you go to the website capital.thebamcompanies.com and check out BAM Capital. A lot of interesting topics there with Toby, and I really did enjoy his book. It's got a lot of good nuggets just on mindset and how to become a better investor. So it was really a good read. A couple of things that really stuck out is he became an attorney to help business owners. And that's just a different type of attorney, right? He didn't want to go to law school to be a lawyer. He wanted to go to law school to help business owners figure out how to make money and to do it in a better way. And being a tax attorney, he's also a real estate investor. And that's one of the most important things to be when I'm looking for an attorney, an accountant, financial advisor, insurance agent, all those things. I want people that are real estate investors, preferably passive syndication real estate investors, because they'll understand what it is I'm doing and they're professionals and their purpose is to help me become a better investor and help my financial situation. Well, how can they do that if they don't understand what I'm doing? So that's a nice a nice thing to have in, in your attorney. The, the talking about Wall Street and how Wall Street and related kind of industries, they make money off of your transactions. So they make money off of your activity. So in a down market, up market, they don't care as long as they can keep you buying and selling. And Toby made the great point that you, the person, you make your money with inactivity. So not panic selling, not just hold forever is, is really what you're looking to do you know, if you really want to build wealth over time. Now, I know when you invest in syndications, a lot of those syndications, they want to turn it quickly. But really, if you get into syndications, just buy and hold, refinance and keep sending you cash flow. That's the way to build wealth. And then he talks about assets. Assets feed you, liabilities bleed you. And that's just a nice thing to keep in mind so you can have the right mindset. You're trying to get assets that feed you cash. And his definition of an asset is different from most people. He says an asset is something that pays you money. So it's something that produces cash flow to you. So in his mind, his, your house is not an asset because it's a liability because you pay monthly for it. You are paying for that house. So just an interesting way to look at, at things. And it really puts your mindset in a different place where you're really thinking about, okay, I'm going to make investments that will send money back to me. And that is cash flow and not necessarily speculation, appreciation, that kind of thing. That's just the bonus. But we're looking for investments that produce cash. You get a current benefit. And that just uh, links up right with, with kind of my attitude and what I want to do. So that was an interesting conversation with Toby. And, and I appreciate him being on, being on the podcast. And that's all we have for you this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. 
Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.